Friends, our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 14th chapter, verses 13 through 21. This is Matthew's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, a miracle that Jesus worked on the banks of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of his earthly ministry. This story begins on a low note, however, because Jesus has just received word that John the Baptist has been executed by Herod. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, so that they may go to the village and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women, and children. The word of the Lord. When Jesus first heard the news about John, that did it. He turned away from the crowds, away from his disciples, and he started walking. And he walked and walked right until he ran out of road at the Sea of Galilee. And unable to walk any further, he got in a boat, and he started rowing, and he rowed out to the middle of the sea, away from everyone, until he reached a deserted place where he could be completely alone with the sky and the sea and with God. It had been an exhausting few months on the road at this point. Jesus had been calling disciples, training them up, teaching the crowds, healing their sick, even casting out demons and stilling a storm. It had been an exhausting time. And all the while, Jesus had been fending off naysayers and critics. He was tired. And now this. Now John, his friend and mentor, brutally beheaded by King Herod. Now for Jesus came a moment of grief. If you've known grief, you know that the walk of grief is quite particular. You do not hurry as you walk with grief, the poet George MacDonald once wrote. Hurrying does not help the journey. Walk slowly, pausing often. Take time, be gentle as you walk with grief. If it is you who are grieving, be gentle with yourself. I think that's just what Jesus was trying to do by leaving the others behind. He was taking time to be gentle 
with himself. It's a rather human moment in the life of Christ. It's a time when we're reminded that in the incarnation, God took on humanity fully. God knew grief in Christ, its power, its unwieldiness, even its surprises. How grief, in the words of C.S. Lewis, can feel like fear. Lewis wrote, I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I can't stop swallowing. At other times, grief feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. Now, those are Lewis's words. We don't have Jesus's internal monologue in our biblical text, but we must imagine the depth, the magnitude of his feelings in this moment, and what it would have been like then to look up and to look out at the horizon and to see the crowds coming slowly toward the shoreline, looming larger as they came. Perhaps Jesus felt some relief in seeing them. He needed some company. And Matthew tells us that he felt compassion. But people always wanted more than that from Jesus. They wanted more than that from the Son of God. And Jesus must have known that the minute he got to shore, he'd be getting to work. Now, we aren't Jesus. But we can relate to that. Our lives and our ministries often demand a lot from us. Like Jesus, we need time in our walks for rest and restoration, don't we? And like Jesus, we often wait to take that break until we're at a breaking point and something devastating has stopped us in our tracks. But then, just like Jesus, we find that that crowd is still calling that the world is drawing us back before we've even had time to take a breath, and certainly before we're ready, what's broken cries out for healing. Looking out at the world, we see needs that we cannot just ignore. And so we are compelled to lay aside our needs, to lay aside our need for the needs of others. That's service, right? I bet that many of us define service that way in terms of self-denial. I let go of myself in order to serve you. And that seems like what Jesus is doing here, rising above his own grief, fear, and exhaustion to meet the world's needs. And per, for Jesus, perhaps that makes sense. He's God, after all, showing up and pouring out love no matter what. But for us, self-denial is more complicated for one thing, self-denial can take a dark turn towards self-destruction sometimes. A young woman remains in an abusive relationship because she believes she can help her partner. A worker does everything he can just to please the boss decade after decade, only to lose track of his personal life with those long hours. A devoted parent, undone by the stress of caring for a child in active addiction, finds herself drowning in shame. In efforts to put others first, we often end up being excruciatingly hard on ourselves. And that's why in the 21st century, we're more likely to hear about self-care than self-denial. 
We're encouraged to unplug. We're warned not to burn out. And the message is that if you don't look out for yourself, you won't be much help to others. And there's truth in that. There's truth there. Before you can love your neighbor as yourself, you have to love yourself. But does anyone else feel stuck in the middle? There seems to be a real conflict between serving others and looking out for myself. Another problem with the self-denial model of service is that it isn't enough. The hard realities of this world are more than one person can handle, no matter her determination. This is the disciple's perspective in the story. The hour is late, the sun is sinking, and 5,000 plus stomachs are rumbling. None of that, none of that can the disciples change on their own. So they get worried and ask Jesus to just send the crowds away. But Jesus' response only raises the stakes. They don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. What? There's nothing here. There's like five loaves of bread, maybe two fish. There's nothing to be done. There's nothing to be done. And yet Jesus insists that we do something. Jesus insists that we make miracles. I'm not kidding. Jesus personally involves his disciples in what can only be described as miracle work. To feed the 5,000, Jesus does not just snap his fingers. It's not a magic trick. It's a miracle. And there's a process begun by God and coordinated by Jesus and in which everyone else participates from the most dedicated disciple to the most anonymous person in that crowd. It takes everyone. First, everybody has to sit down. Good job, by the way. That's the first step. And then Jesus raises his eyes to heaven and he asks God's blessing and he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and they give it away to the crowds and the people eat. But before they go on their way, they give their leftovers back. They give their leftovers back because there was more than enough. Just imagine all that movement. You've got the disciples weaving in and out of the crowds. You've got the baskets going round and round. And as people passing, are passing them around, their hands are touching, their eyes are meeting, their hearts are burning with hope. It was almost like a dance improvisatory, inclusive, not the world's most graceful dance, but certainly its most gracious, the dance God does with human beings, a dance called service. Service isn't just what I do for you, you see. It's something that we do all together, often in unlikely pairings, unlikely partnerships, unlikely ways. Consider the story of our own Dave Barstow, which he shared for this week's Notes for the Road Bible study. I encourage you to read it. But for Dave, it was the rock star Bono from U2 who drew his attention to the global AIDS crisis. That was a need that Dave could not ignore. And once he was drawn in, he was drawn out into the world, constantly drawn out of his comfort zone. 
Sometimes in his 10 years of service and activism, Dave admits that he feels that he would feel totally out of place. But he writes that he also had this overwhelming feeling that he was exactly where God wanted him to be, whether he was in Zimbabwe or Zambia or South Africa, whether he was advising pastors on a compassionate response to AIDS or listening to sex workers share their personal stories. Dave says that Bono wrecked his life, but it sounds like a God thing to me. It's God's way. It's God's way to blow our lives right open so that we can love one another more. The walk to serve is a walk out into the wider world. It sounds exciting, but perhaps you'll still hesitate. Perhaps you're afraid of what Jesus might ask you to do or what Jesus might ask you to give up. Perhaps you feel unready or unqualified, or you've got your own stuff to deal with, Lord knows, and life's hard enough. I've been there, but I'm still going to give you a push, because there's no perfect moment, there's no perfect circumstance to serve. Remember Jesus's grief? Remember how just a few hours ago, he was mourning John all by himself at sea? I don't think that he got over that in order to serve. No, I think he used it. Or rather, he let the divine work through him just as he was as a human being, wounded, grieving in his heart. Jesus became the quintessential wounded healer, equipped by his own experience of pain to help others. In Christ, God personally entered into the depths of human vulnerability and weakness in order to transform both forever and for good. But wounded healing is not just something that Jesus does. We are his followers. We are his miracle co-workers. We are meant to be wounded healers too. Because, as we heard from the Apostle Paul the power of God, the power of Christ is made perfect precisely in our weakness. When we are weak, we are strong. Abundance can arise out of our experiences of loss. Life is still rising up out of death. I was in college when I first got to know the Reverend Becca Stevens, an Episcopal priest in my hometown. Becca is known for founding Thistle Farms, a residential recovery program for women with histories of sex work, addiction, and abuse. It's a tremendous achievement of Becca's because through Thistle Farms, hundreds of women have found healing and the power to change their lives. And the Thistle Farms model is being imitated not only around the country, but around the world. But none of that None of that ever would have happened if Becca had not felt her heart go out to the women that she passed by on the street. And she never might have noticed them in that way if she had not been wounded herself. You see, Becca is open about the fact that at the age of five, shortly after the death of her own father, 
She suffered abuse at the hands of a man she trusted. And as painful as those memories were over time, over time with God's help, she began to see that she had this deep connection to women who'd also been through abuse. Her deep connection to the women she served was grounded in her own life, in her own wound that God was working with. Tiffany Whittier, a parole officer in Colorado Springs, she's another wounded healer. I read about her this week. Tiffany was assigned to case manage Michael, a neo-Nazi gang member recently released from prison. Now, when Tiffany, a black woman, marched up to Michael's house for the first time and Michael opened the door, she could see over his shoulder a large red German war flag with a swastika right in the middle. She could feel the simmering hatred and mistrust of a man who had vowed never to have anything to do with a person of color, with a person like her. But by the grace of God, remembering the wound of racism in her own life, inflicted on her, Tiffany could not let Michael persist in hate. So little by little, she encouraged him. Every time she was there, why don't you take down that flag? Why don't you redecorate? I don't know, put up something happier, more hopeful. (laughs) This is true. It wasn't long. It was not long before an unlikely friendship developed, something that neither one of them could have anticipated, and an unlikely heart started to open. Michael did take down those flags. He put up smiley face posters in their place. And he got his prominent swastika tattoo right in the middle of his chest. He got that covered up. He got and kept a job with his parole officer, Tiffany's support, working alongside Mexican-American co-workers who came to know him as a fast friend. He was a guest at their houses, at their daughter's quinceañeras. The gaping wound of racism begins to close just a little. Friends, just imagine, just imagine what the church could do, what this whole crowd of Christ followers on the road of life could do, where we could go together. Imagine the miracles in the making, the possibilities for healing, when the body of Christ, despite its wounds, knows its unity and works together. This is World Communion Sunday. We ought to be dreaming big with God. Dream of an end to the global AIDS crisis. Dream of reconciliation among all people. Dream of a safe home for refugees, of exploitation and war. Dream of feeding everyone starving. Dream of housing everyone homeless. Dream of peace. Dream of the kingdom. But don't. Do not leave yourself out of it. Let God use you, work through you as you are, and you can expect to see God working through other people in just the same way. Often, the people who you think you're serving. A church, a whole church of wounded healers, and that includes all of us, 
is the only way to heal a wounded world. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.